0: Maker Stories podcast, where we talk to inspirational craftswomen from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. I'm Dr. Karen Patel, a research fellow in the Birmingham Centre for Media and Cultural Research at Birmingham City University. For the past few years, I've been working with Crafts Council UK researching diversity in craft in projects funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. We hope to raise awareness of some of the barriers and challenges facing women makers of colour as they try to establish a craft career. For more information and to listen to the other episodes in this series, visit the website craftexpertise.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at craftexpertiseresearch or one word Welcome to the fifth episode of the series and I'm delighted to be joined by Cassandra Gordon. Thanks for joining us Cassandra. Well no worries. So first off I thought could you tell us a bit about yourself and your area of craft?
1: My area craft, I am a jewellery, goldsmith, jewellery person, jewellery artist. Um, I don't like to put me myself in a box, but it's very jewellery related.
0: Is there any particular metals or any, any style?
1: Precious. Um, now I do precious. So it's gold, silver, platinum, gemstones. But I did start, if people would say more crafty in averted quotes, I did start doing mix media meaning um I did wood I did uh, perspex I did beading so I started off um if you will as a crafty jeweler.
0: That's interesting so
1: how did you first get into that? Well if I'm being honest I've always had a love of jewelry and I've always probably did beading um since I was small um but but then I took it more seriously um about 10 years ago and I used to go to um, to market stores like in Camden and Spitterfields, This is in um, London, and I, I used to sell there. Um, and then I did a silversmithing course um, at uh, I think at Westminster, Kensington and Chelsea's College. And then the precious metals just took off from there.
0: Great. So I've brought you on here today because you've been doing some really important and interesting things around racism in craft. So earlier this year, you wrote an open letter to the jewellery industry about racism in craft. And uh, I'll I'll put a link to it in the description for this podcast later on. I just wanted uh, to ask, what what motivated you to do that letter?
1: I think it was social media. And um, I just had enough. It was around the time of George Floyd's death and I was on because social media as a jeweler, uh, I have, I put things on there, and I did see a lot of jewellers who are um, who are white, and I started. I felt it was a lot of dis, disingenuous, like kind of social media posts, like oh yeah, black power this, or we should do this, and you know, and um, you know, I'm going to be anti-racist, or you know, just talking about a lot about white about guilt, and I'm just like don't you realise it's a lot of virtual signaling? Like, you don't really mean it? Because I've been following you for for years and you don't care. So I I just felt with some people's intentions was just to do it because it was trendy and it helps their algorithms. But they, it, it was just very surface level. And I feel like with a lot of sometimes black people, black bloggers, black academics, it's so easy to say white people don't listen. Um, it's such an easy rebuttal to do, so I just thought instead of me just criticising or giving feedback or constructive feedback to white jewellers about how to be anti-racist or give suggestions, because I don't I don't believe that I should tell them dictate this is what you need to do. It, it, it is a practice; everyone does it in their own way. I thought to write an open letter of oh, there were like five points, um, which are very very practical. Because I'm not in the business of like, oh, I don't know what to do. I need to go to a black person and use all their emotional labour. Yeah. So the five points was roughly like create a pledge, do some financial aid, increase visibility, amplify black voices and open doors. So they're quite open things for white jewellers or people in the industry who have money to do to help black jewellers if they really, really want to help. Than just put in a social media post and pretending that they care or fake caring, because I'm just I just find it very it was just me. Maybe I took it more. But I just find it very very offensive. Um, but then again, I have to remember that to have a bit more empathy. Even though I'm a black woman of thirty-three years, I've had thirty-three years of experience living as a black woman, and have to learn how to be anti-racist and learn to be in these white spaces. Some people have just woken up now since May. So they've got a long way to go. So it's it's it is a balancing act. So that's how the open letter came out because I was sick of like white jewelers asking me what to do when they could just go on Google. Because racism is not a, a new phenomenon, it's been happening for hundreds hundreds of years. And this and actually race has been overstudied. So, you know, a quick Google could help them.
0: Thank you for that. And as you say, you gave some quite you know, some quite simple points for people to follow, what what kind of response did you get uh, to that letter? Not one, what I wanted. So what happened, which I didn't realise, when you, as of
1: the burden of representation, right, what happened, silly me, I didn't realise, was, since I put myself above the parapet, People, the whole the whole industry, random people I never met before, people from the diamond balls, people from, you know, institutions, contact me, randomly, and had people because um, my my phone number and email is pub- public because of business. People with good intentions, not so good intentions, contacted me, talking about racism or their experience about racism, and it wasn't just black. It wasn't black people. It was white people. They're calling me, they're emailing me, telling me about what they think about black things and white and racism. And it didn't have nothing to do with the practicalities of what I had in my letter. It was just like a kind of like, let me call Cassandra to have a chat about racism and absolve all of my all of my guilt of not doing nothing in the trade to help black people. And I wasn't having it. And what and what happened to me? I was getting very annoyed. You can hear it in my voice. It's like, because I was having hundreds of conversations of my free time, talking to people, giving consultations about how they can think about diversity. And all those conversations, hundreds of hours, didn't amount to anything. And it was very upsetting because they're using my emotional labour. I'm not a big jeweller. I'm struggling. You know, I'm just like everyone else. I had about a thousand followers and they took, I felt like the jewellery industry and people and jewellers took a lot from me of my time and emotional labor and nothing was getting done when I know they had the means and resources to do so. So yeah, it was very mixed. But can I just say, I want to leave it on a positive. Um, what was very surprising was the jewelry designer community. And when I mean jewelry designer, people who usually make with their bare hands um, or have their own individual businesses or more like smaller independent jewelers. They came through. They they actually connected. Because it took a while because after having all these conversations with industry people, with designers, and and not much came out of it, um, I decided just randomly, I was just getting fed up. I just went literally five minutes went on GoFundMe, a GoFundMe like fundraising thing for hardship fund for black jewelers. I didn't have. I was just so fed up with people calling me um, and not didn't didn't want to do anything, um, and a lot of empty promises. And I didn't expect, honest, hand on heart, I didn't expect to get any money. I just wanted, just to like, hey, to have some awareness. And but what happened was, about over three hundred jewelry designer makers over the world um, donated money, and jewelry lovers, they just donated money. I asked for about fourteen thousand. The money was. Originally to give ten black jewelers like a thousand pounds and then use the extra four thousand minus GoFundMe fees to do a social research report and um, been very explicit and you know you know and also what I did as well with the jewelry designer community what they did they um, they donated jewelry so we did like a giveaway so we had fifty jewelers all over the world give like fine jewelry precious jewelry and even crap you know non precious jewelry in like a giveaway. Um, to raise money for this, and we smashed the target. So I think a raise over, I can't remember, the figure is over like 20,000, and um, over 20,000 pounds. And I think we supported 21 jewellers. So we doubled how much jewellers we wanted to to support. So if it wasn't for the, I call it the KLG family, Cassandra, Lauren, Gordon family, whoever's on my social media, but it wasn't for the jewellery, the individual jewellery designers, um, who work in the field independence um, this would never happen so I'm in mean, deep gratitude that people connected and, and and engaged.
0: That's great it sounds like such a great collective effort to to support black jewelers and actually actually help people and take forward some of the points that you actually made because it, it did seem to me that from what you've just said about the response to the letter that people maybe saw your points but still just came to you
1: yeah it's literally literally the same thing. they'll be like so what can I do and I'm like exhibit a I wrote five yeah. points can you think about that no but the thing just having a chat with me it, that and you can hear my voice I'm trying to learn how to be more huh, PR savvy and more you know and assimilate in this new world it's just I just find it very in, in, insulting when someone gave you I'm not saying just gave you some ideas and you didn't really think about it you know Mm. you're telling me about your experiences and I think that is that are you trying to understand where I'm coming from or have empathy is your voice better than my voice you know I mean it's just have the common decency just to do some reflection and I feel like as a black person or a craft person I feel like no black person will get angry or get upset about sense checking have to do a little bit of work of do some thinking or do some reflection you know what I mean and that was not happening once I did that open letter yeah a few people got it but it was the majority it was just it was just very upsetting and very wearing down emotionally of giving all this emotional labor and free time and opening up experiences and I think sometimes from the open letter, like or oh, white white people just a general view is that They want you to tell you the deep, deep stories so they, you know, so they can believe you that, oh my God, racism still happens in 2020. You know what I mean? Um, It's like, it's like, I'm like, where have you been living? (laughs) You know what I mean? So um, yeah, it's, you know, I'm learning to be more boundaried with my time and I'm learning how to do that and actually filter out the people who actually want to help or they just want to just chat to me. Uh, or just use me as a um, a figurehead, um, or vir- or just virtue signaling, just using me. Oh yeah, I just had a chat with Cassandra.
0: Yeah, I think what you've just described there is really important, and it's something that I hear. I've been hearing myself from just from looking at the conversations online, but also through my research as well. Just that frustration of the sort of emotional labour that that black makers and makers of colour have to put in and it's how how much further have we got with addressing the issues not just in craft just in in general society so what you've said there is is really important and more importantly what you've done to set up that fund was was incredible really
1: but I'm getting annoyed though. Um, not 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 with you, Karen. I'm getting like, why do I have to do it? That's that's. Yes. See, I, I'm going back to my emotion. I'm going back to June now. <laughs> Sorry, Karen. <laughs> I didn't want to be ranty. I just want to give you like, um, probably like you're probably the only people person who probably asked me like, how did I actually feel? You know, what I mean, everyone yes. wants the practical thing. I'm I'm just reliving like, why me? A little jeweler struggling for nine years. Yeah. Taking on the whole industry, the world in like the world industry, for, to get them, who have money and resources, the jury industry. You know, I don't want to name names before I get myself in trouble. Who's got money to do stuff? Yeah, and resources and and the infrastructure to do stuff. And I really don't like the argument. Well, they're not skilled to do engagement, or we're not skilled to do this. Listen, COVID happened the other day. People were skilled to do stuff for COVID-19 and huma- humanitarian issue, really quick, quick. When people think, oh, we can't turn around these stuff and funds and these initiatives, people, when it was COVID-19 the first time in March, people moved quickly. I didn't see the same emphasis for black lives so or black jewellers or that awareness. So I'm not having it when, you know, the world can be quite agile and change overnight. And there's evidence of that. And two months later, you can't do anything about it. And expecting this one jeweler, who has no hardly any support, um, to to pick up the pieces—it's not fair. And I was, you know, it's not on. And 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 I'm only one black jeweler, Karen. I I, I really believe in co-production.
0: Yeah.
1: Meaning like, talk like if you're going to have schemes and you're going to do things involve black people, don't just go to me. It's not a 5 like divide and rule. Colonial thing. Go to one black jeweler and put her on on a pedestal and just make her like her word is bond. Maybe black jewellers don't don't agree with me, and I know they don't. You know where how I see things, and that's fine. Having a healthy debate is fine, but don't just be lazy and just come to me, or think I'm going to talk on your panel and you know make you feel good. Like do the work. Talk to black jewellers before I even put out the letter. I only know one black jeweler. Only knew one black jeweler because of work and. Engagement and chatting to different people. I know about a hundred now in the UK, just by doing, and that's like three, four months of work.
0: I was wondering, have you heard any success stories from people who have been supported by the fund that you set up?
1: So, there's a trade magazine called the Retail Jeweller. you have to pay a subscription? So, so for you to see the article about some of the jewelers who got who got awarded. For the KLG fund, for sure, um, you'll see what they're doing with the money and their stories. But yeah, people are happy about it. They're getting free money. They're helping up their business. I don't think it's good for me to tell you all their stories. Some people had really, in the application, some really dire conditions, especially with COVID-19. You know how ethnic minorities or black people are disproportionately affected even more due to economic and social reasons. It was very tricky stories and just to let you know about the KLG fund i didn't pick the winners 50 odd people applied and we gave 21 awards and um there was a panel of five independent industry people who 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 picked it it was interesting to see in the applications uh, by the way it was um the admin stuff was helped with the goldsmiths cent- um the goldsmiths so the goldsmith center cuz i was like i can't do everything i did watch the money as well so i, I just felt of representation like because um I had a lot of backlash in this fund and people think f- the f- stealing them you know this kind of stuff trying to do something good right so just like you know Goldsmiths can you hold the money and administer the applications and um the money as well just you know you get black tax you always have to work twice as hard. You always gotta have that anxiety like hey I'm not stealing. Anyway so the interesting fact was or interesting discovery what the judges those five judges like including Alex Monroe what we found out was a lot of jewellers didn't use gemstones in their work or certain techniques, what fine jewellers use. Even though it's, it's open to, like, all jewellers, even if they did, like, wood or whatever, non-precious metal, it was just interesting, the lack of access to the jewellery supply chain and certain techniques and how jewellers get into the jewellery industry, um, which is similar to my story, I don't want to be demeaning, but my story is a bit like a... I wouldn't say hobbyist, but it's like... Did a lot of short courses. I didn't have access to mainstream programmes as an apprentice. And I didn't have mainstream access as going to, like, Centre St Martins doing a silversmithing degree. or Sir John's Cass, the alumni support. So what happens... I can only talk for my story. You do a short course... And then you just left out in the wild when you realise the jewellery industry it's all about connections and who you know and who you get introduced to. So if no one vouches for you, you don't get certain gemstones or you don't get APRO. I don't know if you know what APRO means. I think in Americans they call it a memo, I didn't realise what it is. So it's like, so if I'm doing an engagement ring and I need a diamond, I can't I'm not paying for the diamond up front until the you know I get the customer to pay the deposit or whatever. So I need a diamond to be introduced to a diamond dealer to be vouched by another trade person and say, right, well, Cassandra's all right. Give her this 2,000, 3,000 pound diamond so I can show the customer because that helps with the sale because sometimes the customer can't always feel, like can't see what a two carat means or whatever. They want to see it, right? They want to know what they're buying. So if I don't have access to a diamond dealer no one to vouch for me or offer any trade references, I can't use certain trade um, gemstones. I can't get access to bullion, meaning like gold, certain gold prices and trade prices and stuff like that. So what I've been finding over the years, but I'm always, I'm not competitively pricing because I don't have access to certain diamonds or certain things, and then you know, um, yeah. So that's quite tricky. And also, the experience of going to Hatton Garden, the jewelry quarter, for some, like for my my experience, it's not been the greatest. It's better now, but it hasn't been the great. It hasn't been the greatest. Like accused of being stealing something, being bumped off with work. And I know that I might get a lot of criticism saying like, well, first generation jewelers are like this, and you know, anyone starts a business time and money, access to skills and mentoring, all that kind of things is are barriers, but there's certain nuances for black jewelers, which people don't always get. And uh, and people don't and it's not always um, quantified. And for you being a black person, you can you can sense it, you can talk about it. another black person would get it, but explain it to white people or whatever, it's just it's just a lot.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioning those particular barriers for black jewellers who want to work with more expensive materials. But it's it's really important that you described there those extra barriers and those extra intangible things that you get when you walk around certain suppliers and markets, uh, microaggressions, I imagine. Yes. Yeah, and things like that that make it just so much harder just to do the basic things that... that white jewellers would take for granted
1: absolutely absolutely and it's just like and, and and I feel as I'm doing more reading for this social research report so there's, there's this two stages there's like we do, we've do done a survey because I'm just like don't just come to me listen to black jewellers so I think 100 people applied and we're going to release the findings at the end of the month and then I'm doing this social research report so it's more qualitative like the, um, looking at the, the narratives deep diving interviewed 11 jewellers in different stages of their careers and what they do. So some are designer makers, some are work for the trade, like a polisher or the, that she are like a trade manufacturing person. Or some people just finish uni um, doing their silversmithing courses or the jewellery courses and looking at their experiences. And also like like in, like in intersectionality as well comes into play. So meaning like I'm a black woman, right? So the way sometimes the jewellery industry or people, when I enter the trade and how they treat me, it's different how they do a black man. You know what I mean? Because no one's have been overtly violent towards me in the jewellery trade or working in the jewellery industry. But for a black man, I've had stories and people, t- black jewellers telling me, yeah, it's been more overt, The you know, the the racism. Um, but even being like a, a black woman, like people would say to me like, oh, is she, did she, you know, did she really make the jewellery? I have to tell people, yes, I made from hand. I went, I, I'm a goldsmith. I make these from hand. Like it's like over compensating and telling people stuff when a black when a white jeweler they oh yeah she made it amazing even though she probably bought it from China you know what I mean it's just it's just it's just it's just this extra anxiety I'm talking for me I can't speak for just, just this even in the jeweler it's this extra anxiety of like proving yourself and having access to opportunities I don't believe in handouts but I know it sounds a bit weird I've just done the, the KLG um, fund but I just want the same opportunities to certain things like everyone else. And when I'm talking to other white jewelers, I'm like, what, well, you had that opportunity? That person helped you? You were introduced to that? They t- they reeled off in like 10 different ways where they, ha- where they had help. And me, I never had that. And I'm not saying... T- I think there's a difference of... Enti- I'm like, I just want the fair access. That's what I want personally for myself, fair access to things. And even with press, and I feel like... Even when we talk about the jewellery trade, I feel like... I don't know how you see jewellers. It's such a weird, like, kind of, um, like, space, isn't it? Because we fall into craft, we fall into fashion, we fall as a jewellers, we fall as manufacturers. But I feel that the press has a big responsibility for the jewellery trade. Big. This is a personal thing. Meaning, they set the narrative to consumers about how jewellers are, Right? If you don't feature us (laughs) in your editorials, yes, I know they have to have advertisements, but if they don't make an effort to put us in reels, not just contact me for advertising once in a while, and just address me or present me as a normal, worthy jeweler, it creates that it creates that narrative like, like actually, black jewelers are, I mean, black people are producers of jewelry; they're not just consumers. Don't just You know, when you want a model, and when it's tribal and ethnic, we get a black model and put some jewellery or black designer on her or something like that, or hip-hop. We're broad spectrum. So I just feel like the press, as gatekeepers, commercial press, have a big opportunity to change the narrative. And then I feel like when... If the press does that, it helps the consumers we will get more money as black, black jewellers and we can change the narrative that way. But I feel like, you know, it starts with the press and influencers
0: and then it will trickle down. So we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've gone back into lockdown. How are you coping during these circumstances as a jeweller?
1: It's hard. I'm a bit miffed. That's what I want to say to you. I'm a bit fit because mm-hmm. when the first lockdown happened, I couldn't make because um, Hatton Garden was shut down and I was like, like if I want to do casting or want to get something, and also with gemstones or something. like I yes, you can get things online, but some some things if you if you want to make for me, if I want to make high quality things, I need to see things and touch things. I'm tactile. So if you buy gold or something and it comes to the post and something's wrong with it, you already bought it I and mean, you have to go for customer service and it's long. Or, you know, casting. I needed my casting. So I had to turn down orders. I had to turn down engagement rings. So I was like, I can't promise you to get you this ring. And you know it's an engagement ring or but I can't. So I had to turn down money and it was just, it was very upsetting. And uh, when it eased up, I think in July, I thought I could do virtual appointments and I love them that's the upside i love virtual appointments because it's so time intensive to do in in face like face appointments face-to-face appointments because a lot of people don't, don't turn up you know you're traveling you know you, you freeze up a bit of time so i feel that like i'm going to carry on virtual appointments and because it, it's so commonplace to have zoom and g um, google meet kind of stuff digital kind of communication people accept it now so it doesn't seem like so that's the upside but um yeah it's 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 been hard and the added burden of representation in the jewelry trade and also I don't want to see black people as passive I feel black people should actually stand up as well not just me I think some black people are but some people you know, for their own reasons, they don't want to. And I told, and I to- totally get it. Like, why should we stand up into a certain industry where they've never cared about us and asking for validation? Some people just want to focus on their work. Some people don't want to have be labelled in it with-, with the black thing because it dem, you know, it dilutes their brand in any way. There's different reasons why people don't want to get involved. So I, I, I really re- respect that. I'm not saying that it's bad. It's just I've just done something in a different way. We're all diverse with our voices. We're all different people.
0: Yeah, so it seems like you've, you've managed to to adjust to the current circumstances. So what are your future ambitions? Get investment.
1: I'd love to make it a scalable company. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to be and I want to just improve my designs. I want to be seen as a leading world class jeweler you know, selling all over the world. I want people to recognise my brand as a British brand, uh, you know, well-regarded brand of, of jewellery and employ people and just move production, um, have more production. I love to be like a unicorn, where you know, get venture capital behind me. I do think my brand or how I see myself, you know, when people buy, people not just buying for the pretty thing they want, a company or brand to have a stance on things and i feel like people really cadet to what i say whether how i say it or how it's delivered so it's just amplifying that and um making jewelry more vibrant and more and more more interesting i feel like sometimes jewelry can be quite seen as quite clin- clinical or oh, you've got a pretty person, you got that you got that stick thing model she's blonde she turns her head this side 90, 90 degrees and I think jewelry just needs to be just judged up a bit, you know, just judged up a bit. Um, I thought I have I have high high plans to that, just like redefine how jewelry is seen. Precious jewelry is seen and
0: valued. Great. So, just a couple more questions to finish off. Do you have any role models in craft or in jewelry? I don't have role
1: models, but someone I really I don't know if it's maybe someone I really really respect. So there's this company called Taylor & Heart and it's an engagement company, million, multi-million pound engagement company based in the UK, London. And I respect the co-founder and because we have some, he mentors me from time, and um, open his doors, he actually, he actually, actually, one of the few people phoned me up From reading my open letter, I said, Cassandra, I want to help you kind of open some doors. And it was was a few people, and it's just, we had some conversation, he let me into his company. I became like an artist in residence kind of thing where I'm designing a ring for his company, um, learning about the trade more. It was the first time in nine years I could ask questions without feeling being scolded. Because sometimes in the jewelry industry, they're like, oh, I can't tell you stuff because trade secrets. Or when you do a short course, the tutor has no incentive tell you anything imagine you're paying so much money for a course the tutor don't want to tell you where to get their suppliers from or who's the best person to get the the best stone setter
0: that's a really important point you've just raised about those their sort of trade secrets and, and ways and people to go to ways of working that are probably you only find out if you're sort of in with a, an in crowd or in with the, the sort of inner circle, is it? Yeah, but, but they don't understand.
1: Like, Hatton Garden is shrinking, the jewellery quarter. If you don't tell me you're stone setter, unless I've done something stupid, which I have... If, they don't understand, like, we all use the same people. It's not like gold is gold, right? <laughs> a diamond's a diamond, right? So it's not like a special technology is like, let's make a different gold or a special technology, you know, like, you know what I mean? We all use this. We all go to the same suppliers, so if you want to keep your stone setter or the gold plate happy and they want more business, right? So you are diluting the ecosystem. They don't realise. So if you can get different type of jewellery, I feel like people don't realise you help everybody. I don't like this trade secrets, not telling you this, not telling you the diamond dealer, not telling you this. It helps everybody. You're creating an ego. If you let more jewellers into the ecosystem, more, more, more business for you. But they don't see as that way. It's very like, oh, if I tell you this, or trade secrets. And you don't know, you understand, you might have partnerships. You might think like, oh, I can't do this. I can refer this and, and get get a cut. They don't feel, it's very, to me, sometimes very individual, especially with jewelry designers. Like sometimes I get introduced to a jewelry designer. I always say, oh, have have, have a chat with Cassandra. And then they just ignore me. Like, oh, or they walk past me. Oh, I don't want to talk to her. No, no, I'm sorry. I can't talk to you. Like, what? Just asking you, how do you set up your, your business? I can't tell you. So it's just like, I feel like when there's a lot, a lot of fear, um, you know, it really shuts down the ecosystem of the, you know, the jeweler. I think, you know, gold is gold, diamonds are diamond. It's the way how you market it and how you connect to your customers. That's, that's the advantage. That's the trade secret. Not telling me where to get gold plating in all your stone setter. You know, I, I don't understand people's logic. I find it very frustrating. And when you're not vouched, you know, I need, you know, how do you make the connection? If it's so, if Hatton Garden or the jewellery industry is about who to get to know, I need maybe people from the jewellery schools or whatever to like vouch and say, look, this this person, Cassandra, just paid X amount of thousand for your course because it's not funded by the government and you're over 25. At least give me the foundations to make a decent ring.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up about craft education as well because that's something else that's coming up in my research as well, the sort of various barriers within craft education. Yeah, definitely. Racism, microaggressions.
1: We don't have time to go into it, but it's, it's, yes, that happened a lot. They saw me as a troublemaker and there was a lady who's, mm, let's not say, there was a lady from another um, um, white ethnicity who was very brash, was a bully, and no one said anything. And I'm just like... And the thing is, like, in these art institutions or these short courses, who are you going to complain to? You complain to the, what, whatever, the what the administrator. You don't have, like, a, I don't know, a university, like, proper systems or complaint policy or, like, a dean or something like that. Or, or, or you have, like, a student union who's kind of can be behind you. You paid your money. Not, like, you're not going to go get, get a refund. So, as a black person, for me, who don't have much money, who's saved up to be on this course... There is a negative incentive to be there because you want to see your course through because you paid five, six grand to be on this course. But on a high, lots of trial and errors. (laughs) I mean, doing the KLG fund, um, you know, I got to connect with a lot of um, jewellery designers across the world, white, black, whatever, everybody, people, you know, I really feel the love of the jewellery designer community. I really made a good partnership with the Goldsmiths Company, helping me to, you know, disseminate the reports which is going to happen and dissemin- um, help with the administration of the KLG fund. Time will tell, Karen, after the oh, yeah. report is, is, is published, um, what people are going to do. And I'm retiring from activism life because after the report is there, you have statistics with, with the survey, and you're gonna get something, a deep dive of people's stories, people's narratives, right? I don't wanna hear nobody come to me and say, what What can I do? I don't understand, someone should have came to me. You know, I don't wanna hear those kind of conversations anymore. There's the evidence, do something about it. I'm very optimistic in the, in the designer community, but um, I'm not sure about institutions, fashion institutions, jewelry institutions, and hopefully the press. See jewelry designers as cultural producers and just consumers, and not always put us in a KFC bargain bucket of lists of black jewelers to follow and black jewelers to just watch out for. In, like, really meaningfully integrate us in your ecosystem um, for editorials and for features.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us, Cassandra, and good luck with everything. Where can people find out more about you and your work and maybe get that report when it's finished?
1: It's end of the month, so it'll probably be on my website, end of the month, but um, KLG Jewellery, um, the British spelling, everything's there, or follow me on Instagram, more active on Instagram, it's at KLG g jewellery so cassandra gordon that's my name but klg jewellery on instagram those are the best ways to find me and find information and if you are a black jeweler there is a black jewelers network and uh, you find us on instagram there's a community group where there's about up to about 70 black jewelers over the world where we just, just support each other and um, grow from there
0: great thank you cassandra Thank you for listening to the maker stories podcast brought to you by birmingham city university and crafts council uk this project is funded by the arts and humanities research council's innovation fellowship scheme for more information about this project and for the other episodes in this series visit craftexpertise.com